get started here and we may still get a couple more. Uh, you know, so the last couple of weeks we've been doing introduction to, to the book, just kind of talking about uh, what the message is and how that message is presented and then how we understand that message. Uh, last, so last week we talked mostly about different ways of interpreting Revelation because there are many, <laughs> they are legion, uh, of what this book is, how it's relevant to us, right? I think, uh, I, well, there actually are some who think that Revelation was just something, it, it was a symbolic way of talking about the past. There are ways in which that's true, but I think it's still relevant today. But I also uh, argued last time that it's not just, um, you know, giving predictions of things for us to be watching out for. Um, so it's, it's still relevant, but it's got to be relevant in a way that meant something to its first hearers and relevant to us right now. But I think it can do both, uh, do all. All right, still letting people in. I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you in just a second, uh, but we'll have time for comments and and whatnot uh, or discussion. So whenever there's discussion, please just unmute yourself and join in. We'll we'll get going on it. All right. So in the chat here, I'm sharing uh, a handout. We'll we'll start looking at this. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on it. Uh, it was also I think in on Facebook. If you wanna go and find that. And it's later, and I can share it on here as well. Uh, so this handout is just looking at, uh, first there's an outline of the book, and then it talks about the use of colors and numbers uh, and those symbolic things here. Uh, so let me share, I'll just share it on here as well for people to see, make that easier. Um, okay. So the first page here is an outline. This is from a uh, uh, commentary by Eugene Boring, which again, favorite name. Uh, and the way he's, he structures it is there's three major sections to the letter. Um, chapters one to three are you know, uh, the letters, right? God speaking to these churches. Um, so the seven churches, then uh, the biggest section, part two, four to 18 is God's judgment of uh, what he calls the great city, right? It's about Babylon. And so it's the, you get these cycles of seven, the seven seals, seven trumpets. Um, it starts with this picture in the throne room and then all those things happening. And then the final section, part three is, um, he says, God redeems the holy city. It's, it's about establishing the new Jerusalem and God's making things right. And you get these seven pictures of God's ultimate triumph. And then, then a closing. Uh, so we're not going to, you know, work through that much in the future, but I, you know, it's, it's helpful to see there is um, some sort of plot to Revelation. Uh, there's some sort of story in a sense, even if I would argue it's not telling like this chronological narrative of this event and this event and that event. Uh, we see it's kind of coming at it the same thing from multiple directions, but there is a movement across the, the book in this sense. Um, that doesn't make it a checklist. And then uh, on the second page of this handout, uh, this is from uh, another book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, where he looks at the different colors and numbers in Revelation and what they seem to represent, right? This is a feature of apocalyptic literature that it'll use these sort of images, uh, but they're trying to say something, right? I think that's especially important with the numbers that we're seeing that pretty much every number in Revelation is it's significant for what the number represents not because there's that many of, of that thing, right? So some of them we kind of know, right? Seven we know is the number of 
perfection. Um, and so that's, that's, we see that associated with God very often. 12 is about God's people, right? 12 apostles, 12 tribes. And so we see that, or it's multiples, right? So 24 is from 12, 144 is 12 times 12. Uh, then a thousand just kind of enhances that. Uh, one to pay attention to is the three and a half because three and a half is half of seven. And so that's representing um, it's not full, right? Um, and so in that, when it gets into time, it's three and a half years is the same as 42 months or 1260 days. Whenever you see those terms, just realize that's not saying that's an exact number of, uh, you know, you can count it down your calendar. It's saying this is this kind of time. All right, so that's, that's just something to hold on to. Uh, to have as we go through it. I think that's a handy reference, but we're not going to spend much more time on it unless anyone has any, any questions about that. Just unmute yourself and you can ask. All right. Well, today we're going to get into the actual text of Revelation finally. It only took uh, three weeks. And uh, we're going to start in Revelation chapter one. So let me find that. Didn't already have that pulled up in my Bible. Uh, but if you want to pull that, get your Bibles out and get to Revelation, we'll start here. So uh, we'll, I'll read one to one to eight. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest serving as God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account of the on account of his and on his account, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, so that's that's a lot of introduction there, and there's uh, a lot to unpack. So first thing we see is like this chain of revelation, right? God gave this to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. He gave it to John. That's just kind of a feature of apocalyptic literature that it's kind of handing things down. Uh, and he's told to to write what he what he saw. Um, and I think it's important that we see the sense in which we're not experiencing exactly what John experienced. Right. He didn't have like a video camera, his phone out while he's going through this some mystical experience. Right. Not that you even really could record something like that as it's happening. Right. He's writing it down after the fact. And we can, I think, rightly assume the spirit is still involved in that. And yet to see that uh, there's a difference in the, the revelation in the with small r that John experienced and his recording of that for us. Right. He's trying to put into words something that in some sense is beyond words. And maybe that's why so often the words, uh, the, the imagery and all these things are hard to understand because he's trying to capture something that you can't fully put into words. And yet at the same time, we trust that uh, this is what we need to hear that you know he was giving this to us accurately. But the truth is words always are gonna fall short 
we're talking about God, right? And so we lean on images we understand. That's why we'll see in chapter four, he talks about a throne because that's an image that, that we all, they especially understood of how you depict majesty. And so that's, that's how this works. Uh, now he says, you saw that a couple times in there, he talks about how the time is near, right? Uh, things that are happening soon. And it's a tricky thing, right? To understand how we read that uh, because this idea of near or soon is, is kind of relative. How did they hear it? And how do we hear it? And, and how can both be true? I don't know, what, what do you do with that sense of time? Or what, could, what are different ways you could understand him saying the time is near? Anyone? You'll have to unmute yourself if you want to talk. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing though, right? I've said before, Christians have to have a different perspective on time. And so it has to be near to them and near to us. It kind of all comes together somehow. But again, we want to avoid the tendency to just read that in a very, uh, I think, <clears throat> simplistic sense of, oh, it says it's near. So these things are going to happen in my lifetime and they haven't happened any other time. It has to always be true. Uh, let's see. Uh, so Jesus, the way he's identified here, he is, uh, this is verse five. He's a faithful witness. Uh, now the Greek word for witness is martyr. Uh, and it, it didn't take on this idea of someone who dies for what they believe in until later. Uh, martyr was just the word for like in court. It was a witness. And yet we see that Jesus and many of his followers are examples of that. They, they were witnesses for their faith to the point of death. Um, and so Jesus is the one who sets that pattern, that he did what God wanted him to do, even if it cost him his life. And so we can be faithful witnesses, even if it takes us to that point. Because we know, as he says, he also is the firstborn of the dead. Uh, if we die, we can trust that we, like Christ, will be raised. Uh, that's the this firstborn imagery is there's going to be more with it. And then it also says that he's the ruler of kings, which makes you think, do, do the kings of the earth know this, that, that Christ is their ruler? Uh, at this point, it seems like none of them would have admitted that. And yet we're seeing through this book that it is true. And we're seeing the way that Christ is um, taking authority and using that authority over all the other kings of the earth. So he talks about us and says, we are a kingdom of priests. Uh, what verse is that? Uh, I didn't write that down. Uh, verse six, right? Made us to be a kingdom, priests serving forever. Um, that's imagery from Exodus. You know, I mentioned uh, in the introduction that John, he never really directly quotes the Old Testament, like as Isaiah says, or as Moses wrote, uh, but he's using these images and ideas all the time that they're picked up from there. So in Exodus 19, it talks about how Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests. And so he's applying that to, to us. Right? The Exodus is kind of this foundational picture of God's salvation, of liberation uh, and redemption. And so he's picking that up for us as well. We're, we're kind of like priests to the world, which means we kind of help bridge that gap between God and humanity. That's, that's what a priest ideally is meant to do, but it applies to, to all of us. Uh, then he talks about uh, when he comes, right, he's coming and every eye will see him and all on the earth will, will mourn or wail. 
And that's one of these interesting images that it kind of leads to this ongoing question we'll, we'll think about through the whole book. Is that talking about they're afraid of judgment and they're mourning what's going to happen to them? Or is that somehow tears of repentance, that they're finally seeing the truth and accepting it? Is it a promise or is it a threat? Uh, or is it somehow both? Uh, there's this ongoing tension through the book of what happens to the nations? Are they punished or are they healed? Um, you know, it's, it's, we tend to just pick one or the other, but I think we need to see the way that you can see both throughout the book. Um, and I would say that if we think about Jesus, uh, his death and resurrection, that points us in a specific direction too. And if he's the one who is and was and is to come, that's saying that, that he's consistent. And so it's this open question though, that we're not gonna answer in chapter one, uh, what is God trying to do with the nations who are often you know, uh, working against God? All right, then finally the alpha and the omega, um, and you probably know those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So that's saying he's the A to Z uh, to use our, our idiom, our expression. All right, any, anything there else in the first eight verses? Uh, I mostly just talked a lot. Uh, anything else you wanted to get into? All right, well, let's keep going uh, in verse, verse nine to 16. Uh, here we're gonna get this vision of, of Christ. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus, the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these lampstands I saw one like the son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. His hair, his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. All right, so now it's starting to look a little more apocalyptic. Uh, with this vision. Uh, you do see John saying a little bit about himself. Uh, he's, he's experienced some persecution, and that's why he's on uh, the island of Patmos. We don't have any evidence that it was like a, a prison island or a penal colony, uh, but people would be banished there. It's just kind of Rome's way of saying, we don't want you in the main empire, but we're not going to kill you. We just want you to go away. Uh, so there were, there were other people on this island. Don't imagine that he's like in the middle of nowhere all by himself. Um, but he's separated from these churches that he obviously has a relationship with. Uh, we see here something that's going to come up a lot is this um, theme of he, he hears something and then he sees something. And what he hears and what he sees, uh, they're connected, but they aren't always exactly the same. Um, and we're going to see in the future, that's even more, there's more of a distinction between what he hears and what he sees. And that's going to be important. But here he's He's hearing uh, something that tells him to turn around and he sees this vision of, of Jesus. So I'm gonna share here um, some artist depictions of uh, how they interpreted this, <laughs> this site that he saw. All right, so you've got the lampstands, uh, you see Jesus with the sword in his mouth 
and the seven stars. Uh, they didn't do the white here on that one. Uh, here's another a little more modern comic booky. Uh, so you got the white hair, his flaming eyes, um, the golden sash, the stars in his hand. Um, here's another, not in color, but again, the, the sword in his mouth. Um, what do you, what's the problem with trying to illustrate John's vision just in, in this example? Why does that in some ways fall short or not work fully? I mean, that is what it says, right? They're, they're accurately depicting what John wrote, but why is, why is that not worked fully? In what sense is it not fully communicated the same way? You ought to unmute yourselves uh, if you wanna, wanna share. Well, it's a metaphor. It's not necessarily a physical picture mm -hmm. and it's hard to draw a metaphor. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah, we so we can hear it, and it in some sense it makes sense. But then when you try and make it literal, it's like, wait a second, that doesn't work. How does he have a sword in his mouth and he's talking to him? All right, that's that's the one that always seems kind of funny to me. It's, he's literally got it between his teeth, or it's coming out of his mouth somehow. Um, but similar to the log and the log in the eye, mm -hmm. I've never yeah. seen anyone with a log in their eye. Right, and yet, I mean, that's one of Jesus. I think great strengths with his parables is. He can just give you these kind of outlandish images and it communicates better than just saying, don't be hypocritical, right? Saying it's like this. Um, and so this, it's something I'll keep coming back to, but there's a reason that he does this. It's not to just, you know, have these weird images that we've got to, you know, make into literal pictures or something else. It's communicating truth and even, I think, a deeper way than it would without doing that. Now we'll see, we see it here sometimes. He does tell us what these symbolic things uh, refer to, right? So the lampstands, he says, are churches, the stars are the angels of those churches. Um, so sometimes we get clues to what it's, what it's about. And yet it's still at the same time, he's not just trying to obscure those things with the code. I mean, that's, he tells us what it means. So what, what's the point there? He's trying to reveal something deeper about the nature of it, right? Uh, that, that they're with God, they give light, right? You can, you can kind of think a lot about, okay, what would it mean to say that we are a lampstand, right? Kind of gets to one of the things we saw in the sermon today of we're the light of the world. Um, so just saying we're a lampstand, it, it points to that without saying it directly. That's the power of metaphor and, and poetry. Um, and again, the idea that like Christ holding the stars in his hand, uh, one way I've, I've heard that read is, you know, the stars don't control our destiny, like astrology says, right? Which is popular then and, and seems to be still popular today. Instead, Christ holds them in his hand, right? He's the one who holds the future, if you want to think of it in that way. And then again, the sword in his mouth. Uh, it's, it's silly to picture it, but what is it actually trying to communicate, right? That, that uh, Jesus speaks a word of judgment as the word of God, as John said, and in, in, uh, again, in the sermon today. So it's not about him fighting a physical battle. You couldn't really fight somebody holding a sword in your mouth. Uh, that's why you would hold it in your hand. So I think it's significant, right? It's not in his hand, it's in his mouth. And that distinction, uh, I think, is important for how Christ judges the nations. It's through his, his word, the, the word of his mouth, uh, not necessarily the way we would think. We also see here that he's willing to apply uh, terminology that originally referred to God. He'll apply that to Jesus with, with no conflict. Um, this the image of the ancient of days, uh, that's we see that in Daniel 7, which also we get the, the Son of Man image. Um, 
and Daniel, they're kind of distinct, but here he's sort of bringing them together. And so, you know, the early church, they're kind of working out this Trinitarian theology. How does it work that God is, uh, you know, Jesus, God and human, and, and the, how does the Holy Spirit fit in that? It's kind of in process in some ways, but we see it. It's clear that they, they did have that sense that Jesus was, was one with God there, as John 1 says. All right, anything else you notice in, in that, that section, uh, 9 to 16? All right, well, let's uh, wrap up today with 17 to, to 20 with uh, what Jesus says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so there's where he explains the, that symbol a little bit. I got ahead of myself earlier. Um, so, right, go back to that picture, whether, however literally you want to take it. Um, how would you respond to seeing that kind of Jesus, right? I mean, I've got, I don't know if you can see them on, on the stream, but you can see a lot of my Jesuses up there. Um, you know, there's Buddy Jesus. There's the one with the little kids. Um, this is not that. So I don't know. What would your response be to seeing a vision of Jesus like this? Is that usually how you picture Jesus? Much a little terrifying, right? I had one teacher who said, this is the kind of Jesus you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. Uh, <laughs> although he would light it up pretty well because he's got flames coming out of his eyes. Um, it's, again, uh, I think it's important that we hold all of these, these images together, right? It's not just um, Jesus who's, who's gentle uh, with the little kids. That is certainly true. And we want to hold on to that. And yet we also see this, this powerful Lord Jesus, right? That's that's more often how we see Jesus in, in Revelation. Um, but the way that one writer puts it, the same hands that holds the stars touches John's shoulder, right? So even, um, uh, oh, was somebody trying to talk? I, I don't know if I can, uh, Karen, were you, Roman, were you trying to say something? I got muted again. <laughs> Technology. I don't know if I can unmute people. No. Okay, I guess it's not working. Yeah, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie, do you have a thought? I think you're still muted. There you go. I don't know what's, our technology is not cooperating today. All right, well, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we hold both together, right? That uh, as powerful as, as he seems, he's still on our side, right? The first thing he says, don't be afraid, which is the most common phrase that we see uh, when an angel or, or someone shows up is, hey, don't be afraid, which implies they may seem a little scary. Um, 
but yeah, we don't, that shouldn't be our starting place of, of fear of God in that sense of, of terror, right? Well, yes, but you clearly see there is a sense of, we should have reverence and awe and respect uh, because uh, this is, yeah, this is not Jesus meek and mild. Uh, it's not the little baby Jesus. Um, and so, and part of that is he says, you know, don't be afraid. Look, I died and I'm alive again forever and ever. And that's our hope as well. And one of the ways he communicates that is saying that he rules over death and Hades. Uh, I talked about this in, in one of my previous classes that Hades is, not, it's not hell. It's, it's like the, the place of the dead. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, in a sense where people are waiting the resurrection, possibly if they're not already with God, we see uh, the saints are, we're going to see this in Revelation, the saints are before the throne. Uh, and yet Hades is a way of talking about where the dead are, uh, but it can be just equivalent to the grave. Uh, but the point is, Jesus beat them, both death and Hades. Um, and so he owns them, right? He's got the keys. He can let people out if he wants to. Um, so if the one who beat death is on our side, well, what do we need to be afraid of, right? The root of all our fears, in some sense, always goes back to death. And so if Christ has beaten that, why should I fear anything? And so he writes uh, what is, which could be taken to mean, you know, the, the, what he says to the churches and what will be, which is more of what's happening. Uh, but again, how you work out what's, what's in the present, what's in the future, uh, that's not always super clear and sometimes can be up to interpretation or it could be both. So I think the big takeaway here this morning is Christ is powerful and holy and Christ is Lord, but Christ is on our side. So we don't need to fear anything, uh, no matter what comes. Uh, they were facing intense persecution oftentimes, uh, and we face grief and struggles and in all sorts of ways. And yet the one who has power over death is, is with us and loves us and is working against those forces of death, right? It's not just that he's saying, well, yeah, death is real and, and you know, uh, I'll still take care of you. It's no, we're working to overcome it and it will be overcome. And you can trust that because of what you've seen me do. All right, well, we haven't had much luck with people uh, uh, unmuting and, and sharing, but any final thoughts, if you're able, before we wrap up? All right. Well, I hope this has uh, been uh, interesting enough as we continue to get into it. Chapters two and three, I think, are, are as we get to the letters to the churches, those are pretty easy to see. Okay, what does this mean for us as we think about uh, where we are and what uh, Jesus would say to our church, to the angel of Westlink? <laughs> so, uh, but that won't be next week. Next week, we're going to be doing the, the drive-in. So I hope you all can come out to that. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll pick up in Revelation 2. Thank you all for being with us.